welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception. Chris, what do we have this week? We've uh, we've got perhaps our first divisive pick. I know we were somewhat uh, unaligned when we went through uh, Kelly Reichert's first cow, uh, but I feel like you, even though I was more hyped on the movie than you, uh, you you could see why why people liked it so much, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I didn't love the movie at all. I kind of hated it, uh, but I loved the work they put into it. <laughs> yeah. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that and that's an interesting segue. The work they put into it for uh, the movie we're going through today, which is Dave Franco's directorial debut, The Rental. Um, yeah, I I had no idea this movie even existed to be honest until it made news this summer by being the second movie to reach both the top of the VOD chart as well as the top of the actual box office, as little as that may exist nowadays. Uh, Did you know about it before? That kind of made Dave Uh, Franco's horror movie uh, newsworthy? Yeah, I had heard. So the only way that I had heard about it is that him and Alison Brie wrote like a romp romantic movie during the quarantine. Okay. And like that, that like under byline or some tidbit in that story was that, Oh yeah, they also did the rental and it's coming out soon. <laughs> Yeesh. So uh, where listen, so we're going to trace the life of this film. We should t- say what it's about and then go back to the origins of how James's little brother got into the scary movie business. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, I mean, at the end of the day, like here's the plot, two couples, rent a vacation home for a getaway, but things take a nightmarish turn when they think they're being spied on. Uh, and that's really kind of it, right? There's not much pretty, else pretty thin. going on. Yeah, very thin. <laughs> uh, and it's funny that they, that sort of comes up that way. Like, uh, you know, going through the notes, there's so many interviews about this movie. That's one of the, like, I think we made a good pick because there's a lot to go through oh, yeah. in terms of like, you know, the conception and where they shot it and all this sort of stuff. Um, but it, it, you know, it initially started out, it, it sounds like Dave, you know, Dave has always been doing sort of videos. Uh, he brings this up a lot in interviews that, you know, this isn't obviously, he has a lot of experience in industry as an actor, uh, but he also did funnier die videos, like a lot of those. Right. And I think one of the reasons that he decided to go this sort of the director route is that I think he, he I think he gets more, something more out of doing or creating something of his own than being an actor. Right. Uh, and he even says like early on that a lot of the little videos that he would do would get more views than the independent films that he was in. So I think he's <laughs> always sort of been tracking towards the creator archer, if you will, uh, path in his life. Um, and, but it's weird too. It's, it's always hard to talk about Dave versus James just because James is one of those kind of wacky dudes who's in like every movie <laughs> He was in Pineville Express, which we talked about uh, last week. Uh, and like, but also keep in mind, James Franco is like directed like 20 movies. Yeah. Do you know about all this? Like, it's just like he lives in this other universe. He's getting his PhD in literature or has it already. Uh, he's like really, I guess, a self-proclaimed renaissance man. Right. And I think Dave is sort of feeding into that sort of creative world. Every man sort of doing everything like an all rounder person and i think like this directing this movie or creating this movie 
kind of seems like an attempt to sort of be in his brother's world. Do you think that makes sense? Is that true? Do you think? Yeah, I, I definitely see that. I mean, I think one of the key things that stood out to me when watching the movie is that it's a movie about two brothers and the little brother is kind of endlessly living in the shadow of his older brother, which is a little on the nose, but <laughs> it, uh, yeah. I, I think that that's very much true. I mean, uh, Franco's directorial work has basically been scattershot, even though it's been pretty prolific. Like he supposedly adapted yeah. an unwatchable version of Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. Is that correct? He did. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So like uh, I can see that that being that that's that's very daunting. Right. Like he's not only one of the biggest comedic actors in the world and he's your big brother, but also he's yeah getting his Ph.D. in lit and uh, adapting Faulkner. So, uh, you know, regardless of whether or not he's been successful, like clearly he's got the money to burn. He's been doing it and he's also gotten in a lot of trouble in recent years, which we kind of. Uh, avoided talking about last week I yeah think. we did not talk about that at all <laughs> but i mean <laughs> we didn't want to touch it, on the 10 foot pole yeah yeah but it, that that's gotta i mean that that's something that's there and still you're his little brother and you're married to a pretty famous tv actress who's kind of never really made a splash as a lead character on the big screen um added, there's just like a lot to analyze in here with uh not just the conception of this particular movie but I think if anything, looking at it as a larger picture, it seems like if there is a distinction between the two brothers, it's that Dave has uh, more of an interest in genre work, which he has said yeah. numerous times in a lot of these interviews for the rental. Why do you think that is? I mean, he he gave some pretty generic answers, I, I in my opinion, anyways. But like, what is what is what is uh, drawing him to this other than? Uh, what he said over and over again, which is just like the the new art horror renaissance that some people. Yeah, he brings to. that up. But it, I almost feel like and he says this explicitly. I can't remember where it is. It's in one of the interviews where he's basically like, yeah, I want to you know, I wanted to do a movie. I knew it was, I was going to do it for very cheap uh, in a single location with a small cast. And it's sort of like, well, that's a horror movie. Right. Like, what so I think it's there? almost like, yeah, exactly. Like, I don't know. The real sort of. Um, spark of this movie is him teaming up with Joe Swanberg. Yes. And, you know, jo Joe Swanberg being the mumblecore king, somebody who I hated, just hated <laughs> when I was younger, uh, but have like grown to love his work uh, because it's so singular and it's so uh, definitive. And it, it, it really is sort of the paradigm of mumblecore. And they met on the set of the Netflix show Easy. Uh, and it sounds like they really hit it off as friends. And I think what happened here is just like two people just BSing with each other. And like, oh, what if we made a movie together? Mm -hmm. What would it be? And then eventually this came. Well, let's make this horror movie about an Airbnb mansion uh, on the coast of Oregon. And, you know, like it just sort of a spitballing situation. And he does sort of throw out the names like um, Asher and Jordan Peele. I, I just I don't I see it in the film as an attempt to go there, but I don't see the passion that's in those other movies. It's just not there. Yeah. And so to me, it feels like Dave, like what I think a lot of more famous people do when they want to get into directing or producing, they end up sort of playing that imitation game. 
Mm-hmm. And, and this is like a little bit more getting into the reception. It, it, it's almost like there's two sides to this movie. There's Dave Franco wanting to make a splash as a director. Right. Uh, on the one side. Uh, and it's very much this sort of look at me, look what I can do type vibe to it. And then the other side, the Joe Swanberg side, which is I'm going to make movies for the rest of my life. They're always going to be about relationships or like emotional turmoil uh, uh, with two people or whatever in love and romance. Um, and they're very deep characterizations. And then you have that mixed together and you get the rental, which is, I, I think, one of the more bizarre films that I've seen uh, in a long time. It is all over the place. Um, but what else? How else did he come up with this movie? What was the sort of the the spark that got him going on this well there was a a interview on the fangoria podcast which seems to be one of the more illuminating ones about the actual story so probably one of the key things to keep in mind is uh this and i saw some critics kind of raving about coming up with this idea but it doesn't seem that novel to me but we can get into that later when we talk about the reception of the film but uh dave franco had and according to his interviews has still has a lot of paranoia over the concept of home sharing, specifically the, you know, 2010s uh, craze of Airbnb in particular. Right. And so he even went so far as to say, like, whenever he rents an Airbnb, which he hasn't stopped doing, but that his paranoia gets him to the point where he's even like looking to see where there may be surveillance cameras. He he says it's not a question of if it's a question of where they are and that, uh, you know, whether or not you take that at face value. Uh, I mean, he is kind of a it's hard to tell. I feel like a lot of the tone in these interviews because he's such a goofy dude when he's being serious versus when he's perhaps being ironic. I don't know. Um, but it does seem like he was trying to capitalize off of this very basic idea of uh, home sharing, this idea that we are very trusting to the people whose homes we rent and that we are also very trusting to the people that we rent our homes to. Um, I was hoping that there would be a little more nuance and uh, layers to that, like because there could be a whole, there could be a whole <laughs> analysis of, you know, the, the deterioration of late cap- capitalism. But it seems like it's pretty well, service he- level. He says that with the country is as divided as it's ever been and no one trusts each other. That's as far as he goes. Yeah. <laughs> he scratches right? it. And like <laughs> he, he does like skim along the surface. And I think that like the earlier part of the film really it, it does, you know, it does hit that bullseye a bit, I would say, uh, in terms of just who do you trust? It's a stranger. It's, you're in a strange place. And, and the the film is very vibey with that paranoia. Mm-hmm. There's, so there's a lot of things it does well. Um, but I think one of the, the main criticisms that you're going to have of the film, you can even tell in the conception here, is that while he wants to do this elevated horror genre, it takes a real special person and artist to do that. Right. Like those people took horror genre and watched all the movies and said, you know what? I want to do something totally different. Uh, you know, Ari Asher is a perfect example with uh, Hereditary. Like you watch that movie and you're like, yeah, this feels like some other movies, but I've never seen anything like yeah, this before. That, that, that's and a movie it, that's actually bonkers. Yeah, oh, it's at, totally insane. Like I can't even rewatch that film because it almost gives me a panic attack. Yeah. Like it's that intense of a movie. And um, I think, you know, he's striving towards that. It's one of those people he, he wants 
it's like he wants uh, the accolades of that, but he doesn't know what it takes to right. get there. Yes. Like he wants to get on top of the mountaintop, but he doesn't know the path to get there at mm-hmm. all. Um, and I think that like that sort of comes out over and over again in this film. Um, you know, what about uh, this idea of par- like the Airbnb concept? Have you done Airbnb before? Yeah. Yeah, of course. I, I feel Have like you ever thought that when you were doing it, you know, it's there. There is definitely a divide between the people in this world that are constantly vigilant and paranoid about those things. Uh, even be- I think pre Airbnb and like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a high school English teacher. I've taught 1984, but like that's never really bothered me and i don't really know why (laughs) because when i watch a movie i can totally get enveloped in that and i will say in the first act of this movie i i was all about it i i felt that dread and paranoia but um a lot of it felt forced and i think that's where the problem comes in is that there's i don't know there's a that what do you what do you think do you think that there is like uh uh is there a strong enough seed here that it could have gone in a more in a in a in a direct uh a more depth uh direction of oh more depth. yeah i thought i thought uh the first hour of this i was all in like 100 percent really in. uh i loved it uh it's like the moment obviously spoilers don't listen to this podcast unless you've seen the movie let's, let's put it that way yes um what happens with, you know, the altercation with Toby Huss's, I don't know what his actual character's name is, the guy who rents the house. Taylor, the, the I believe, brother. yeah. Yeah. That altercation to me was like, oh, this is amazing. Like, this is one of those great sort of um, just what would you do in this moment if this happened? Mm-hmm. Especially Al, uh, Alison Brie's character in this. Like, what would you do? Uh, and like the whole slasher element of it, I was just like, and cause I didn't, I didn't watch the trailer, so I didn't know that that's the direction it was going to go in. Sure. I was like, wait, but why, but why? you have exactly. this like, beautiful, <laughs> like nuanced. And a lot of that's Joe Swanberg. Yes. That, um, the relationship between the main characters is just, I thought really tangled up and actually just, I have to mention drinking buddies cause I just, it's one, of my, <laughs> one of my favorite movies. Uh, it reminded me a lot of, there's a whole scene sequence in drinking buddies. That's just like what is happening yes. minus the violence, minus the dread, but the same emotional sort of, um, I don't know what you, the betrayal, yeah. I guess you would call it a dr- um, drunken mistake that perhaps was deeper yeah. than it needed to be. Yeah. And so I think like there's so much meat on the bone and then they just scrape it all I off know. and they throw the bone <laughs> out into the ocean. Essentially is what they do. Um, let's talk about how, where they shot this and stuff like that yeah. before we dive into reception. Um, so they shot this mostly in Southern Oregon. Um, uh, Franco found a house that he really liked, uh, I guess, near the town of Bandon, Oregon. Uh, you know, it's, you know, I guess it's on location, whatever it is that it is really isolated and really in the middle of nowhere. He talks about spending the night, uh, in the house and, you know, during the day, the, the views were gorgeous, but at night it felt very claustrophobic. Like somebody would be watching him. It's just, and I don't know, everybody knows that feeling, but there's a special kind of version of that feeling when you're isolated out in like the woods or in nature, it's like, you might be people might be watching you or you might be just so isolated and alone you just feel like you're very vulnerable Mm. in a lot of different ways Uh, and that movie this movie really plays to that i think right i mean you felt that when you're watching it yeah the Um, the location is is pretty perfect i will say that they they clearly found like the ideal spot both in terms of a place in america as well as like the actual house we discussed this when we uh 
did our episode about Kevin Bacon's The Darkness from 2016 about just <laughs> yes, like yes. you need if you're going to do a, a movie where the house becomes, you know, a quote unquote character, it's the house has to matter. It has to actually have some character to it. Uh, and that movie had none. But this one does like they they really uh, made sure to pick one that was special. And that's perhaps another reason why it just it felt so unfortunate where the direction that it went in the in the, in the back half uh, another note on the production too that I, that I picked out he said multiple times in different interviews in different ways but he was basically like i don't know what they shot this for but my guess did you find anything no, i couldn't find anything in the budget the, yeah nothing i would say it's going to be under 10 uh but probably north of two yeah around i'd probably put it in the five ish yeah, yeah. And so he says kind of multiple times, uh, you know, I want to surround myself with really amazing people. I wanted to surround myself with people that would work their basically work their asses off. And I didn't want people who are going to clock in and clock out. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like that's such a weird. Yes. That's a weird thing to say, especially about an industry that is so I want to call hierarchical, but it's almost still like guilds. Right. Right. Like mm-hmm. the people who do like shoot these films and stuff like that. They're very tight knit group of people. They're consummate professionals. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they also are the type of people that like, you know, you have to work 12 hours a day. Yeah. Like that's just what you have to do. But it's that's the job. I just felt like his perspective just seemed kind of weird to me. Did, I, did you pick that out when he was talking Absolutely. about that stuff? That was a big. Red did you flag. really? Oh, OK. Yeah. I didn't know. I, I thought it was just me. No. What did you think? of that? I thought that it was definitely it felt like. Uh, I mean, I, I hate to say it because I kind of like I kind of like the guy and I'm kind of interested to see what he does next. But it definitely gave like a pampered Hollywood star quality to it where it's just like, oh, really? Like people work hard when I order them around. And it's just, <laughs> just like a little bit of a power trip where it was. I don't know. And this is on the heels of uh, doing a lot of research for the movie Twister for our, our personal friend <laughs> movie night and reading stories about Jan de Bont on the said of that and it's just like i don't know it, it it's i think it especially sucks and maybe especially stuck out a sore thumb because that's not the vibe i get from joe swanberg at all like he literally gives no. his actors yeah. writing credits because so much of the movie's improvised and relaxed by nature and is kind of like a hangout zone so i think that's another reason why the the, the movie overall just kind of felt uh off to me is because it really did feel it i did i don't know if like he vibed with Swanberg as much as he just like wanted somebody to direct him on how to deal with relationships and characters and stuff because it really feels to me like two different movies maybe three yeah I mean it's it was I think getting we're kind of transitioning over to react a release so I'm gonna get there anyways uh it's like it felt like a very powerful attempt at a first film that clearly does not work Mm -hmm like on any level uh and so but i think like going for it that sort of confidence which i think dave clearly has is really important to making good like great art sure and i like the fact that he went for it and he you know he slept in the house it's clearly that he was invested in this project yeah that's true all the way through right and so that i sort of pick out but you know, there's uh, I think what sometimes happens is that and this is maybe like my delusional understanding of the movie industry. But because Dave is famous and he has money and he has connections, things are going to move forward yeah. when they maybe should not have. <laughs> right. Right. Like and, and it's like because I just think about people that I know that are struggling artists and like the 
uh, pain that they go through trying to create something and get it out there. And it is years of work, sometimes decades of work for people to really get their voice heard. And usually through those decades, what they create becomes honed by that struggle on some level into something really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, First Cow is an example of something like that. Like she clearly has been struggling her entire life to make films. Right. Right. And this is not an accident that what she creates is really fascinating, and interesting. Uh, whereas Dave Franco's first movie is like, I think, a lot of fun and interesting. But like there's there's not much going on underneath the surface. Right. Right. Uh, and I think that's kind of you can see that in sort of the conception, the production of it. It's not like he left anything on the field. It's just that, like, you know, he thinks he's playing Major League Baseball, but he's really playing like single A. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I, th- um, this might be a good to spot. <laughs> you got to get one each in each episode. Um, I uh, I want I thought this might be a good spot to to ask because I didn't meet. I, for, I meant to text you, but I forgot. Have you seen the the Shutter movie, uh, The Beach House yet? I've not. Okay. No. It'd be, I'd be interested to get your reaction to that because that is a kind of prime example. I read about it after watching it because I was so just kind of mesmerized by it, even though I didn't love it. It was a debut feature by a guy that's been in the business doing location sh- scouting um, for various films for over 20 years. And he finally gets a shot to direct this like micro budget horror movie. And that that you can definitely like feel that like this is something that's been he's been working at for years and, you know, honing, even though it's still kind of messy because it's still a first feature it's like there's been like sweat blood sweat and tears put into it whereas here it's just kind of like you know getting you know getting his wife apart and getting uh a couple friends together and uh, convincing a guy that's been right that's written a bunch of movies uh to help you out you know it just it i wish that there was there was more of that feeling of struggle like you said with like kelly reichert's career or something but you're not going to get that when you have like one of the most famous movie stars like former oscar host and academy award nominees little brother make a movie it's just not gonna happen yeah it's not gonna happen not at all and i think it's it's funny too with the the release of this movie you know he talked about how he wanted to do the uh festival circuit with allison and travel the whole country and show this movie obviously you can't do that in a pandemic so it's sort of been a truncated odd release they did a drive-in premiere uh, at some random theater uh, <laughs> in City of Industry in L.A., which is like an industrial suburb. Right. Um, uh, very odd. Uh, and I think that, like, the only reason that we're talking about this movie, the only reason mm-hmm. is that the pandemic hit, the movie theater industry collapsed. It'll probably never recover. And they needed to sort of put stuff out there. And IFC decided, hey, we're going to put it out in drive-ins in the theaters that are open. And it did pretty darn well. Uh, and so, you know, it's a little bit of an odd release, but I think the fact that uh, it's doing the video on demand, it's doing the drive ins and it's the number one movie in the country because there's nothing else out, uh, I think is the main reason why we're talking about this. Do you think that under normal circumstances, this movie would get this much press? Oh, hell no. It it would yeah. it'd be buried. Well, I mean, also the same thing. What was that movie from IFC Films, The Lodge, that kind of. Oh yeah, was at totally, the top yeah. of the box office for several weeks solely through drive-in. Like I think IFC has has you know uh, it's kind of sickening that in a, a pandemic some 
you know, people are being successful and they've they've found their way to do that is through drive in horror movies. And uh, you add that like kind of streak that they've been on throughout the summer, plus the Franco name and Alison Brie. And you f- suddenly have like uh, and also it's like we, we should mention this. You had this in our notes that the cinematography is by Christian Springer, who uh, shot Atlanta, which is like one of the most beautiful TV series yeah. uh, of recent years. And so like it, it's just it's slick. It's got famous people and it's also like a, a scary movie. So it, and there's nothing else out there. So no, there's nothing else out there to swallow it up. So, of course, it it, it, it hits the top. Um, So I don't know. What do you yeah, do it's, you, a, it's a perfect storm. Yes, it's the perfect storm exactly. for him in this movie. It, he would never get a, a better reception than he's getting right now. And he calls out movies like uh, like Palm Springs, too. It's another good example of a movie that like. You know, they bought it for $22 million. Uh, you know, it's just hit at the right moment. Everybody was talking about it. And it kind of, it just has that sort of, it's a pandemic. It's a pandemic movie. It's just what it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what were we going to say? I was going to ask, I was looking at these numbers. You're always a better numbers guy than me. So it, it oh, yeah, okay. grossed uh, 404K in 253 theaters, two thirds of them drive-ins. Uh, and do you think that that in comparison, you know, keeping in mind the pandemic, uh, you know, after 10 day gross of 916 K like still that's, it's not even hit a million, but is it, if we're thinking like a 5 million budget and maybe another five or 10 P and a prints and advertising ish, where, where do you yeah, think this is going to go? Maybe that's a good point. Cause I ran that number, like the per theater average and it's like not very high. It's right. sub 2000. It's still pretty low. And anytime you're sub 2000, you're like, this is a joke. This is not a real movie essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I think from that perspective, like the reception or sort of like the release, it's perfect. It's it was never going to get better than this. Mm -hmm. It's it's probably like a million dollars by this weekend. Um, I don't think that. I think I in the back of IFC's mind, it was basically like, hey, if we market this right and we play this in New York and Los Angeles and it pops, um, which they knew by the time they saw it, it wasn't going to. then there's a chance that we can make 10, 15 million dollars in wide release. That's their goal. Mm-hmm. The real goal is about 20 million. Sure. If you could do that, then like you've really hit a home run here. That was never going to happen with this because the movie is like not palatable at all to critics or anybody. We'll <laughs> talk about what people have said. And so, like, I think for them, it was just like, this is all gravy train. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm sure they wrote down the entire film, the whole thing. Sure. Like, this is a complete loss. Every dollar that we get out of this, we're going to be happy. Um, but it, from a, like a financial performance overall, not very good. Yeah. Like it's just not, it's not a great. And of course, they're, keeping in mind that we, we're still not getting any dollar numbers on VOD, right? Just rankings. No. Yeah. Yeah. All this is number one on uh, the Apple iTunes store. Right. It's not even like a conglomerate ranking either. It's just that one platform, sure. which makes sense because it's very glossy and people love it. What do critics think about this thing? Well, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, all critics average is 73 percent. It's about six point three out of ten. Uh, so in my classroom, that'd be a barely passing uh, <laughs> top critic, 62 percent. Um, and that is that's just it's not it's not great. But it's also like it, it feels like uh, it feels like the equivalent of, you know, getting a pat on the back. Like, uh, you know, you, you try. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> the Rotten Tomato audience score, which once again is not verified anymore due to the, you know, COVID. Uh, 45% rough. Letterboxd, 56%. Uh, that's the film nerds. It's a little bit better, but still not great. IMDb of 5.8. And of <sighs> course, no cinema yeah. score. What? Uh, Those are atrocious numbers. Yes. I'm just going to say that. Like, 
the the critics i think is kind of a push number one it's a horror film right so they always like take like five percent off like it's just they don't like horror films in general they're more critical because it's pure genre work for the most part that art uh the rotten tomato audience score and the imdb score are just like that's because what you would hope for is that like okay like this film snobs don't love it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. whatever uh, maybe it's like the you know grown-ups or something where the audience just <laughs> loves it. Uh, no, but yeah, they yeah. the the thing about this is it's no man's land, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not arty enough for the film snobs and letterbox people, and it's not out there enough. Um, that would have been just Joe Swanberg doing his thing for an hour and a half, right. and people would be like, "Oh, this is you know it's a you know polemic against whatever." <laughs> um, and then, but you also don't have the pure slasher horror nerds kind of like myself and like the normal horror people that are into those movies or the average moviegoer who wants to be scared. It doesn't do that either. So nobody wins. Nope. We all lose in this situation. We, we do, uh, which is what, another reason why I think the, the reviews, it's kind of interesting now looking at the, the quotes I pulled for positive versus negative. Um, uh, can, can I go through a couple of these? Yeah. yeah. yeah jump so into it. Richard Roper, who uh, is probably one of my least favorite critics working today, so bad. <laughs> <laughs> he said the rental would have worked purely as a compelling character study about four dysfunctional adults unraveling over the course of a long weekend. OK, I'm with you so far, Richard. And then he says, <laughs> but when the presence of a homicidal maniac is introduced to the proceedings, the transition to horror film is brilliant and wacky and pretty darn great. Oh, uh, that's not true. Not I tr- mean, that's just objectively <laughs> false. That doesn't make any no, sense. It's so silly. Um, I guess he just liked being surprised. I don't know. Uh, Leah Greenblatt of EW. I can kind of understand where she's coming from. Uh, she's no Lisa Schwartzbaum, but she says uh, the fact that so much of the script by Franco and Swanberg reads as straight Sundancey drama turns out to be one of the movie's best tricks, though, in letting the audience sit with these two pairs. They actually become people, not just meatbags destined for terror. And I think that was <laughs> that was that's the part that like if it had been executed in a different way. I don't know. Did you see the Duplass Brothers movie uh, Baghead? back from the mumble i did not movement. no i really i, I want to see it though it's interesting uh i don't know how how much it would hold up nowadays uh but it i think that is a movie that really managed to walk that fine line and i i would be very surprised if swanberg wasn't thinking about it when helping dave out with this movie because uh here i i did want them to become people but then it's like they just didn't quite and then and then you know the the the, the the bad thing happens the random killer comes uh and last but not least michael rothman of consequence of sound says franco exercises so much restraint especially during the frenetic final act that you're always left on edge there's hardly a single gratuitous shot to the entire film instead franco leans on peripheral shots to keep everyone's eyes working and i will say those- the first time that that happened when uh the killer comes out of the shadows and then it cuts before any violence occurs I was that was cool. I like that. But then they recycled that trick like four times in the movie. Yeah. And like you read these positives and they're not even that good. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Right. They're just not. And I think that like ultimately when you see this movie, it, it, it's the tale of two movies, which I've already talked about. But it is so abrupt how it changes mm-hmm. and it gets you to care about these characters in a relationship drama. And you really I mean, not maybe not care, but you're invested emotionally to see what happens. Right. And then you just sort of you kill them all off just gets in away. really sort of just brutal ways that, you know, it's just it breaks all of these different rules. And I think that they wanted to break rules. But like the ending, it's one of the worst endings <laughs> I think so I've bad. ever seen of any movie. <laughs> so and it's just like and I'll 
just my own personal reaction to the film is I, I think there's a lot that's amazing here. Uh, there's a lot that's really good. Um, I think the first hour is very well done. I think the decision to bring in this, let's talk, talk about the killer. Like what, what is that all about? Yeah, and that's what the negative reviews are always coming back to featuring one of the most dissatisfying anticlimactic endings in general memory. Jeanette Katsoulis of the New York times, Bill Jabiri from Fulcher says everything dissipates in such a spectacularly unsatisfying fashion that you might wonder if you dreamed the whole thing. And it's just, yeah, it's, it feels so random. It's, and yet it was so clear that this is what Franco was planning all along, but with, so little foreshadowing because he's worried about you know what ab- about us guessing it i don't know it just but also i don't know uh i will say uh, it, i was already off i was already off the movie when allison Bree's character decided not to call the cops when Toby huss's character died yeah I, to, uh, that's the turning point of the film yes. when so like I've I've rewritten the film in my head. Sure. I want to hear <laughs> of like, well, not like totally, but it's sort of like, obviously you can't kill him or maybe he dies in that attack, which doesn't make any sense either because he didn't really hit him, hit him that hard. I mean, punched in the head a few times, but he's not going to die. Right. But I think the, the conflict is set up that like Dan Stevens wants to protect his brother because he's already in trouble for stuff. He's going to go back to prison or whatever. Um, now, the Alison Bree situation, to me, that's the center moral of the entire movie. Mm-hmm. It's like, what does she do in that scenario? And like, I don't think she calls the cops. Like, I don't think someone would do that. I don't think that you would call the cops on, you know, your very, you know, living boyfriend. Are they fiance? I don't even know. They're not married, right? Uh, I well, know. I think she's married to Dan Stevens. But with her married, yeah, that there's, a, there's a wedding ring. OK, so even even better, uh, she's not going to call the cops. The old, people I don't think she I'm going to push back no. on that because I would. Why would she call the cops? I, I she's so I think she calls the cops because she's all it's already been made clear in the first act of the film that she doesn't even really like Dan Stevens brother. And then also she's already mad at her husband because she's found out that not only did she steal him away from another girl, then that girl stole him away from another girl as well, or however you want to phrase it, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's already trouble in paradise times two, perhaps three with the whole thing with, uh, you know, that she's eventually going to find out anyways about her husband cheating on her. So yeah, yeah. I just, I really, I, I think if you, you need to sell me on that, I need to be way more invested in Alison Brie's character. And they do so much work to get you invested in the love triangle, the, the other side of the love triangle with his business partner yeah. and with the brother that Alison Brie's character, ironically, because that's like the filmmaker's wife there, that I, I, it just feels, oh. it, it, it feels a, a put a, a bridge too far for me. Yeah, she's very much in the background. Mm-hmm. I, I just see it as like this very a, a good ensemble piece where they sort of play out what to do with the body, all that kind of stuff. And like I could what I really wanted to happen was for them to leave the beach house, mm-hmm. right, to do whatever, whatever evil act they're going to do and then see how that plays out in their life back in their normal life. Wherever they are, San Francisco, Portland. Yeah, that would have been more. But it's uh, also, I still know what you did last summer. Been, I mean, it's. I know. I want an art house version of I know what you did last summer. That's what I've been trying to say the entire time. All right. I'm with you on that. 
but yeah, overall, it's uh, I, what you know. What's your final concluding thought on this film before we close the show? Out? Uh, my final you- concluding thought is that I wasted seven dollars. But oh man, I didn't I didn't waste any money. But, <laughs> but I I do think there there's redeeming factors. It's not one of the worst movies. It it's better than Netflix's Desperados, starring Nassim Pedrad. Oh <laughs> god, I can't. You made me watch that. You didn't make me. Told me to watch, it, and then I watched it. I wanted to like, die. <laughs> but uh, it's oh, that's a, that's a point though. It is. A point. Is this better than Net House Net uh, Netflix Net House. Um, House style? Uh, that's a good question. I, I so that made me wonder. I just probably my last bit here is uh i was yeah. curious about ifc films they have had quite the evolution over the past 20 years they've now been around yeah. and they they came out of the gate so strong right they had the art house uh um crowd enraptured with their debut movie e2 mama tambien back in 2001 as well as like the mainstream crossover indie drama comedy crowd with my big fat greek wedding so like they they like came out so strong and then they went super arty with like my Winnipeg and uh, Antichrist and Fish Tank. And then they took a left turn into horror with the human centipede in 2009. And so then they tried to like play both sides of that coin going back and forth between like arty movies like Certified Copy and Francis Ha and Blue is the Warmest Color, but then also still do movies like The Babadook. And now with the pandemic hitting and they are just like pushing their horror side of the business to the forefront, I'm very curious to see if, you know, they haven't really had a critically acclaimed movie since Boyhood in 2014. So I don't know if uh, of the years of of them doing something more serious are gone. And that's the thing that confuses me so much about the rental because it's got that serious edge to it you know like the yeah. relationship drama from swanberg's side but it's also just got this really kind of trashy lowbrow di- yeah. direct to dvd style or style i love both sides of those <laughs> is the problem for me yeah. the problem is they just don't fit together no, like you give me a joe swanberg movie about a relationship deteriorating at, at a beach house like this I, i'm all in yes i've already seen that movie and i want to see it again um but the and then like the low budget horror stuff I'm super into as well, as long as it's done uh, in the right way. Uh, I would say that, like, I think that I think Dave Franco has a lot of potential. That's what I'm going to say. I think that, like, I think there's something there with him that, like, he understands how to bring the right people together to make a film. And at the end of the day, that's what a director's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're essentially like a, you know, you're kind of like a mini producer on set uh, and sort of um, being a leader and gathering these great um, artists to work on this film. I think he can do that. I just think he needs to sort of not write yes, and not shoot anything, <laughs> right? Like he just sort of needs to, you know, let the cinematographer the or the DP. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Just like get, get the writer to do their thing. And um, I, I think that the results will be better. I, I, I think that there's a lot of promise in this film um, and it has that rawness of a debut. Um, but as a movie in and of itself, it, it's a complete failure. I would say mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's how I see it. That's fair. Um, what are we going to do next, next week? That's week. all we have for the rental. Yes. What's next, next week? week? We are going to take a look at, uh, one of the selections new to streaming on Netflix. It is t- the 10th anniversary of the 2010 romance drama. Remember me starring Robert Pattinson and Emily DeRaven. Uh, why? I, because it's, I don't know why, it's, why not? it's got one of the most, insanely awful endings to any movie ever made. So I highly recommend you watch it and come back and 
help us uh, trace the life of this movie next week on Film Trace. Film Trace.